Welcome to the Centre for Personalised Medicine podcast, where we explore the promises and pitfalls of personalised medicine and ask questions about the ethical and societal challenges it creates. I'm Rachel Horton and I'm here with Gabby Samuel. And in today's episode, we're looking at neoliberalism, how in our society, we tend to focus a lot on risk and try to control it through regulation. But this doesn't always work well in ensuring ethical practice, particularly in relation to genetics. We're joined by Dr. Kate Lyle, Senior Research Fellow at the Clinical Ethics, Law and Society Group at Oxford, who recently published a great article in the Journal of Medical Ethics exploring this issue. Kate, please could we start by talking about how you got interested in this area? Yeah, I'm a sociologist and my research background is in health and healthcare technologies. I'm particularly interested in the implementation of new technologies and how they change practice and what we need to do to incorporate those in practice. So I'm currently looking at genomic medicine and looking at how we can help prepare patients and professionals for the changes that this will bring in practice and particularly focusing on the social and ethical challenges that it raises. So we're focusing on this concept of ethical preparedness. So really trying to look at what can we do to give people the skills and support that they need to anticipate and navigate the ethical challenges that genomic medicine will raise for them when they arise and and be able and and feel like they can um, approach they know how to approach them whatever those challenges might be so part of this is about looking at how ethics is approached through the regulatory systems um, around research and healthcare practice and we found that, unfortunately, sometimes they sit in contrast to a ethical preparedness approach. And um, could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so the research ethics systems in the UK are very compliance focused. So we've got lots of policies that are intended to tell researchers what is and isn't allowed, what they are allowed to do, what they aren't allowed to do in quite a, a restricted way. So this compliance-focused approach to research ethics has its roots in broader neoliberal approaches to governance. Could you tell us a bit more about neoliberal approaches and what they mean? Yeah, so neoliberalism is a political and economic ideology that essentially centres around everything around the individual and their rights and responsibilities to make their own choices and manage their own risks. Um, So there's a big focus on quantifying risk. The idea being that if all risks associated with certain activities, certain behaviours can be quantified and made clear to people, then they are free to make their own judgments about what levels of risk are acceptable to them and what they're prepared to take on. And then importantly, they're held responsible for their own choices that they make and whatever might come of those choices. So... Could you just tell us how that ideology about risk links to healthcare research to make that connection? Yeah, so in that context, that neoliberal context, um, research and healthcare research is seen as a risk. So we all need to be made aware of all the potential risks of participating in the research. And then we can make an informed decision about whether those risks are acceptable to us and if this is something that we want to be part of. And this idea of um, healthcare research being risky activity has been reinforced by a series of very high profile scandals that I'm sure you will remember. So such as there was the unauthorised retention of 
organs at Older Hay Hospital. And then also the case of Howard Shipman, the GP that murdered hundreds of patients. These sort of high profile scandals had provided more in- impetus for the government to intervene to try and regulate and minimise risks around healthcare practice and research. And the way this has been done has been through the development of regulatory policies that tell people what to do and then institutions that have been set up to ensure that people are complying with those regulations. And because, as we've already said, individual rights and autonomy are so central to neoliberal approaches, there's been this really concentrated attention on the concept of consent in research. So what's sort of the the issue with that in terms of what's what's the problem with with this major focus on consent of course consent is absolutely important in research and risks need to be communicated to potential participants so they can make those um, informed decisions but the problem comes when the focus of ethics is so much on consent that it overshadows other important ethical factors that also need to be considered so there are criticisms that Uh, Consent has come to be seen as an ethical panacea and is often the only frame of reference that's used to consider whether specific research activities are ethical or not. So really what I'm saying is, well, consent is really important and we absolutely shouldn't be doing um, research without consent. At the same time, it shouldn't be seen as a proxy for ethical research. That sounds really interesting, Kate, and it's it's something that's come up in my research as well. I was just wondering if you could give us like an example to illustrate what you mean. Yeah, so there's a really good example um, that we wrote about in the paper where sort of this focus on consent has got in the way of or potentially got in the way of really good research. So a few years ago, a team of researchers were trying to set up a trial that was looking at rapid genetic testing to guide antibiotic use. So this was a really great study that had potential to make a clear difference to care. So the background to this is that there are particular antibiotics called aminoglycosides that are frequently used to treat sick babies, but they also have the potential to cause hearing loss in a small portion of the population that has a particular genetic variant. So there's about one in 500 people have this genetic variant. So ideally, you'd want to test for that variant first, and then you can give an alternative treatment if you find that they have the variant that will mean that they go deaf. So genetic testing for this variant is frequently done in non-emergency settings. So it's really common with children that have cystic fibrosis. So we know that they're going to they're likely to need quite a lot of antibiotics throughout their life. Uh, So they are frequently tested for this variant. And then if they have the variant, then they can be given a different line of treatment that's equally effective. Because the issue with aminoglycosides is they are recommended as the first line of treatment, not because they're more effective, but because they don't readily contribute towards um, antibiotic resistance as some other antibiotics do. So there are other equally effective treatments available. So testing for this variant is traditionally done through the NHS laboratory and it takes about three or four days to come back. So this is fine in a secondary care or primary care setting but in an emergency setting that's not going to be any good when we need to act straight away on the results. So the research team saw a clear need here for a rapid point of care test that could be used in 
a neonatal intensive care unit to test babies when they come in to see if they have this variant and then could be given an appropriate course of antibiotics. And they calculated that this could prevent approximately 180 cases of irreversible deafness each year, which is quite a significant impact. So they worked with an industry partner. They developed the point of care test that could deliver the results in less than 30 minutes. And that was approved for use by the um, regulatory body. And then they applied for research ethics approval to run a study to see if it was possible to implement this technology within current practice within the neonatal intensive care unit. That sounds like a really great idea on the face of it. What, what were the challenges in making that actually happen? Well, the real challenge that they had in getting through getting this through the ethics system was uh, focused around consent. Obviously, the shorter time frame for the delivery of the results was the main selling feature of the test. But that shorter time frame also meant that there was less time for seeking consent from participants to use the test. And this raised a problem in terms of the regulations. So generally with genetic tests, the consent process can take quite a long time. And it's important to give patients time to weigh up the pros and cons of the test and decide whether they want to have it, uh, whether they want to go through with testing, especially as often the result of that test won't actually affect their treatment options. But the difference here is that there is clear action that can be taken on the basis of a positive or a negative result, but that action needs to be implemented very quickly. So the researchers decided that they would seek consent for the clinical use of the test and participation in the research separately. So essentially, when a baby was admitted to the neonatal unit, the parents would be told, we're going to do a range of tests on your child, and one of which will involve looking at if they've got a genetic predisposition to deafness if we give them a certain antibiotic. So that was sort of consent to use the test. And then at a later point, the parents would be asked whether they would consent for their child's data to be used in the clinical trial. And at this point, if they said, no, we don't want to be part of that trial, then their data wouldn't be included. So a, a two-stage approach to consent. So the individual ethics committee that looked at the study um, after some deliberation decided they were quite happy with this approach. But then their decision to approve it was revoked at a higher level on the basis that the trial might be in breach of the Human Tissue Act because of this approach to consent. So why would it be in breach of the Human Tissue Act? Why do they think that? So, yeah, so this is quite interesting. So the Human Tissue Act regulates healthcare research and practice. And the, the point of it is to ensure appropriate use of human tissue. And this came off a particularly, this regulation particularly came off the back of the um, scandal that we, we talked about earlier, where organs were being retained without permission in a hospital. So the, yeah, so this act was set up to make sure that everybody knew what they should and shouldn't be doing with human tissue. And the act specifically mentions DNA material in there and says that DNA analysis should never be done without qualifying consent. And the ethics body felt that the researchers' approach to consent didn't meet the standard of qualifying consent. So there was a lot of back and forth between different organisations and the legal advice was sought. And then eventually they came to the decision that they could approve the trial design on the basis that administering the test represented a clinical decision 
rather than a research question. And so then when it came to be seen as a um, clinical decision, then that was governed by a different part of the Human Tissue Act that says that if it's being used for medical diagnosis or treatment, then DNA can be analysed without explicit consent. This sounds really confusing. Like, <laughs> I, mean, I can imagine as a practitioner, how would you know, like, the rules for research and the regulations for, for clinical practice? Yeah, it does feel like a minefield. And I think what I find really interesting about it is that, so they did finally approve the study with the original consent process in place. So they didn't change anything around it. It was just, it was focused on the uh, semantics around it of how we classify certain activities. The research didn't have to change anything. Everybody had to change their mindset about what that activity represented. So even though the trial was approved in the end, this was a real problem for the researchers. It significantly delayed the start of their trial and at one point, they thought they weren't ever going to be able to do the trial at all. And that fundamentally challenged the whole concept of genetic point of care testing. It's interesting how um, like oblivious in a way the regulation seemed to the, the context that like here you needed a quick result. And that was the whole point of the, the test. And there was nothing kind of that could account for that and sort of um another way needed to be found within that same regulation to make it happen rather than being able to I don't know look at the idea at face value and say this makes sense can we like, yeah make it happen? yeah exactly and I think you know this is, is such a great example of how the focus on consent can really sort of blinker you to what are, what are the real ethical issues at stake and I think here the ethics body were really focused on what is permissible permissible within the remit of the regulations and even within the wording of the regulations rather than what's ethical in the context of that specific situation? The important things in that specific situation was that the point of care test had already been approved, so we knew that it worked for detecting that variant. Testing for that variant is recommended in other settings, in secondary care settings. And so this was just about saying, can we detect this variant quickly to act on it quickly in an emergency situation? So from that perspective, I think you could argue that it would be unethical to not trial that innovation, considering it could make such a difference to practice and to improve care for those children. I think that's quite interesting because I often, when I'm looking at ethical research, you don't hear that counter is, is it unethical not to do the research? That's not often considered, right? It's always about yeah. risks. And I, yeah, so I just think that's quite an interesting reflection because all of my work around big data kind of hits that same issue with consent. So when I spoke to research ethics committee members, they focused on this need for consent to approve research, even when it's so difficult to get consent. And I'm just wondering, after you've done all this research, what's the way forward? Like, what, what can we do? I think that we would argue that the way forward is ethical preparedness. And I think one of my one of the other problems with this focus on consent and this compliance approach, so not only does it potentially exclude consideration of the other ethical issues that are really, the ethical issues that are really, ext- really at stake and, and potentially prevent really good research it also sends the message that ethics 
is not for researchers to think about. It's for institutions to think about. It's for there's separate bodies that will do that will decide for you if something is ethical. So it's not your job. Um, so you just you just write your protocol and then somebody else will tell you if that's ethical or not. I think that's a really dangerous message to give because it essentially absolving researchers of having any sort of responsibility for ensuring ethical practice. I find this a really interesting tension between, on the one hand, researchers needing to have some form of responsibility yeah. about ethics as different, you know, bureaucratic ethics and everyday ethics, but needing to have that ethical reflection in everyday decision making versus concerns that I've seen raised in the literature about if we give everything, all the responsibilities to researchers, they have a vested interest. So how we we need to ensure that those invested interests have some form of gatekeeper. Yeah. You know what I mean? No, I completely agree with that. And I don't think, you know, the answer is not to go from one end of the scale to the other we don't and I would never advocate not having regulation I think regulation is really important and we do need it we also need researchers and healthcare practitioners that are able to take responsibility for ethical practice and are able to look for ethical issues in their own practice and then think about how do I navigate those and I think part of navigating though is is not to say it's not this individual individualistic approach of oh, well you're responsible you're responsible for ensuring ethical practice it needs to be it's a community response isn't it of as a research community we all need to, everybody wants to do ethical research practice and as a community we need to find the best way to ensuring that and regulation has a role and researchers have a role we just need to redress that balance a little bit and make more space for us to have these discussions about how should we be navigating certain challenges in practice so that it's not always just oh well let's just look up the regulation and see what that says because we're never going to get all of the answers from regulation just correct me if i'm wrong so what you're saying is that um in terms of regulation rather than having it as this kind of hierarchical system where it's above you and tells you what you should do or should not do but it should be much more kind of iterative back and forward approach where you can have discussions with regulators about ethical issues yeah yeah with regulators but also with researchers as well I think there's much more we need to make much more space for that so that regulation is something that we draw on as part of a variety of resources that we will draw upon to work out what is the most ethical thing to do in specific contexts I think that's the, the the key thing we need to a more situated approach that takes in other considerations in specific settings, which regulation can't do. It, it by its very nature, it has to be decontextualized and standardized, and that is not always going to give us the right answers for specific situations. If you had one message for people to take away from this podcast, what would it be? Um, I think my message would be for the research community as a whole and. By that, I mean individual researchers as well as regulators and ethics committees and funders and publishers of academic research that we just all need to think about the role of consent and how that's been positioned in relation to research ethics and just really think about it. it, Consent is not the only ethical issue. We all need to question how we approach ethics and particularly this 
role that we've given to consent. Consent's not the only thing. And we all need to think about our own responsibilities in relation to ensuring ethics, ethical research practice. Kate, where can we go to find out more about your work? You can read about that case study in the paper that I wrote in the Journal of Medical Ethics. It's called uh, Beyond Regulatory Approaches to Ethics, Making Space for Ethical Preparedness in Healthcare Research. And on their website, you can also access um, a blog that I wrote to go alongside that paper, which is called um, Is Neoliberalism Bad for Our Health? Thank you so much, Kate, for making the time to talk to us today. It's been really great to talk more about your paper. And um, thank you for listening to this episode of the Centre for Personalised Medicine podcast. If you'd like to find out more about personalised medicine and its promises and challenges, please visit the Centre for Personalised Medicine website at cpm.well.ox.ac.uk. 